Thank you again. <clears throat> if you take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I think we read the passage, or some of the passage earlier in our service, but I do want to read it again. And then a message entitled, All Nations in Perfect Harmony. All Nations in Perfect Harmony. And the subtitle being, Racial Harmony is Praiseworthy because it magnifies the glory of God. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain and seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. And they, the elders, began to sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and ethnic group. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. A beautiful, beautiful passage. About the glory of our King. And the praise He will receive. And He is receiving for His work of ransoming. From all nations and all people. Bringing about perfect harmony. I mean, not since the Garden of Eden have we seen something like this. The word Eden, the word Eden means blissful. And then bliss was subverted 
the perfect harmony which existed in Eden, destroyed. And we read thousands of years of history to this revelation. And what do we see? Bliss. Harmony. Glory. Now, you, some would question the wisdom of preaching on a topic of racial harmony in the year 2010. And many of you might question preaching it from this text. So I say up front, I've chosen a sub-point from the main point of this text. And I do it without any reservation because I believe it's a good and right point. It's not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is our God reigns and His conqueror has delivered to Him a people from every tribe and every language and every people and every ethnic group. And so His glory shall increase through the eons of eternity. That's the main point of the text. But this is a worthy sub-point, and so I do pick up on it, and I, I want to preach through it. And some of you would even question not so much this text, but just the whole subject. Why even talk about it? Our nation's come a long way in the last 400 years since the colonists arrived. We've seen the abolition of the slave trade and the emancipation of slavery, or the emancipation of slaves from slavery, the, the United States of America has survived the intense racial hatred which existed in the civil rights struggle. And we've even managed to approve legislation to integrate schools, allow all men an equal vote no matter their creed or their color. And we've pushed for equality in private enterprise more than maybe any other nation on the face of the earth. And in this last year, We've seen the election of the first African-American to the office, the highest office in politics, in public life. I mean, what nation elects a leader, the leader of a country, from such a minority? So we've come a long way. We've come a long way. And so let's don't, uh, let's don't think that what I'm saying is we're, we haven't made no progress. That's not the point at all. By God's grace, we've made many, many progressive steps. And for that, we should be thankful. We have come a long way in our history. And why would I take time then to preach a topical sermon on this subject? I mean, there's tons of subjects. And I don't normally do this. And so, so why is a good question. And I've thought about it. It's because I believe that racism is one of the greatest barriers to the expansion of the gospel. The evangelization, evangelization of our city and the joy of our own hearts. Racism is an insidious sin And it comes in many shapes. 
and sizes. So I want to tell you a story which I believe will better define the problem of racism as it exists among us here at Grace Fellowship. And I, I, I admit up front I was not alive during the great struggle of, for civil, civil liberty, which went on in the 50s, the 60s, and the early 70s. I don't speak as an eyewitness to those things, though I have read extensively in the area of history in this part of the world, especially the South. I've read a lot to, to educate myself in these last few years about what did take place. Some of you lived through it, and so you were an eyewitness to the struggle. Being a young man has a lot of advantages, which you can probably attest to if you're older than me. It also has disadvantages. The fact that uh, some of you will write off what I have to say from the beginning because I'm not as old as you is one of those disadvantages. The fact that in your minds you've decided you don't know what you're talking about because you didn't live there is a disadvantage. But I face the disadvantage. I accept it. And I say, let's just set that aside. Let's be honest and open with one another. I want to tell a story. I've told stories. Uh, I'm a storyteller. That's, that's what I do. I like to tell stories. And on racial Sunday, Racial Harmony Sunday, I've told stories about the struggle and I've told stories about history. But I don't want to do that today. I, I, I pray, I've prayed for months. I've thought for months, how would I introduce this sermon? I knew I wanted to preach on this text. I almost didn't preach on this text because it's intimidating. But I, this is the way I chose to do it. When I was growing up in a small town in Mississippi, racism had taken a different shape from the violent days of Mississippi burning. I, I knew nothing of that. I, I grew up in a different time. My dad and mom taught me, and they're godly people, and they taught me these truths, and I think you'll identify with them. All people are created equal. My mom and dad taught me that. All people are created equal. That They taught me that we should try our best to love each and every person because God loves them. And they scolded me and encouraged me never to join in the hypocrite—I mean, the the, uh, the heaping on of ridicule on a person because of their social status, their their lack of wealth, or their color, their race. They they told me, they taught me that. My parents were godly people, and they. They taught me these things, and some of you taught these things to your children, and us younger folk are trying to do that. And it's a noble thing. It's a right thing. We even sing songs to our children. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Yes, Jesus loved me. It's a song that we sing with our children, and we should. And it's, it's exactly the spirit that we should have. And these are principles that I again want to say we should be teaching our children and helping them understand. But 
the question that rises in my mind and heart is, is this enough? Is it enough to tell them that people are equal and to tell them that God loves all people and to tell them they should not ridicule people because of their status or their race? Is that enough? My parents, I haven't asked them, but, I, but from their practice, I would say they, they thought that's enough. That's enough. Is it simply enough for us to say with our mouths that something is wrong, that people are equal? Or, like other areas of our life, do we need to put into practice what we say we believe? You know, if a man came to you and told you he had the sin of adultery in his life, you wouldn't just tell him it's wrong. You would show him it's wrong. You would live in such a way as to mentor him and help him grow and repent and deny and affirm the truths of the Scripture and pattern his life after the Scripture. That's what you would do. That's what we would do at Grace Fellowship. We would not just have a negative view towards the sin. We would have a positive encouragement towards the biblical teachings. In both modeling it, living it. You know, as I was growing up, I grew up on a cotton farm, which I now find providential. You know, my dad, my biological father, abandoned us. I was adopted by a cotton farmer. I sweated in fields, laboring manually, not as much as some, but I, I, I sweated many hours in fields doing a, a labor, a task, a hands-on thing that a couple of hundred years ago, when we talk about slavery, I can identify with the pain and the suffering. It's painful. If you're a free man or a slave, it's hard work. It's lots of sweat. I... I identified with that early on. I lived in a state that is still backwards. That's okay. Alabama's not much further along. It's still backwards in many ways. So I grew up in this environment of cotton farming, simple people, godly men and women, going to a Christian school. When I was four years old, my best friend... His name was Alfonso. Alfonso and I were pals. We sat together at lunch. We ate our snack together. We slept on our mats next to each other. We played together. When I was in the first grade, I asked my mom about Alfonso coming to spend the night. She didn't go into any depth of reason, just... It was not ever okay for Alfonso. My other friends could spend a night with me, but not Alfonso. In the third grade, our friendship ended. Because by the third grade, eight years old, in an environment where I was being told there were no differences, I lived like there were differences. Alfonso. 
At eight, I was racist. And I kept living that way. I never hit a man because of his color. I never cursed a man because of his color. I didn't do any of those things. I just took myself out of the environment and quarantined myself, quarantined myself to my white world with people like me. I lived that way. We had very few blacks in our school. We were not segregated on purpose, but they just didn't want to come to our school. And I didn't know why. Couldn't fathom why anybody wouldn't want to go to my school. Of course, I wasn't black. Couldn't imagine it. While the Alfonsos of the world, when they were put to the side at about third, fourth grade, by the sixth grade, were gone, most of them. In high school, we had three black people who came into our lives at different times, none of them in the same room together. We had, in other words, one black student in our room. And then they left, and another one came, and they left, and Raven graduated with us. You know, she's the only one who wasn't invited to our graduation party. Nobody did it on purpose. If you would have asked us, we would not have said she was not welcome. Quite the opposite. We would have said she's welcome, but she doesn't want to go hang out with us. Raven is one of the few people that was never invited to our church. Not because she would have been told to leave, but because she had her own church. She wouldn't want to come to our church. Racism comes in all shapes, all sizes. It is deceptive. It creeps in and excuses itself. It makes many excuses like, well, this is just the way our culture is. They wouldn't want it any more than we would want it. Well, I know lots of black people, Indian people, Asian people at work. They live down the street. I talk to them when I get my mail. I'm not mean to anybody. But is that enough? I guess that's what's been stirring in my mind and my heart about my life. Not about you as much as about me. And God, as he often does, turns up the heat. When you start to get under conviction, he turns up the heat. I went to college. On a team of 120, there were more blacks in the locker room than there were whites. I was in utter shock. And I continued my pattern. I did not dislike my black teammates. I worked with them on the football field. I just didn't hang out with them. Didn't go to town with them. They did their thing. I did my thing. And we excused it. I did in my mind. And I know some of my friends that did because they had their own friends and we got our friends. And that continued until the man who, thank God, discipled me called the question.
He just asked, are you a racist? I was offended. I defended myself. And then God made it obvious and clear. And I began to repent and take positive steps which were met with mixed results. Because when people have been wounded over years, they build their own defenses. And so I pushed away again. Until this past year, even with all of my defenses I thought destroyed and my heart open to having open relationships with people, whoever they were, then we adopted a little Asian girl. And I want to tell you, racism goes deep. It is deceptive. And it will convince you that you are okay. And you are safe. And this is just the way things are. In the South. Couple that with my daughter saying to me one night as I was putting her to bed and teaching her about discipleship, Daddy... Do you disciple any black people? No. Have you ever discipled any black people? One? Kinda? Why? Children ask the most pointed questions, don't they? Because she grew up around the table where we talked about diversity and she didn't see it. She didn't see it because it didn't exist in my life. Because it was enough to teach against it, but not do anything positive towards reconciliation. And so I have to repent again and have repented again. And I have to take positive steps, acts of repentance, fruits of repentance. In my own life. And so when I preach this morning and I, I bring up things that are, are abrasive to you and they hurt your feelings and they make you wonder and question, don't think I'm attacking you. I'm not. I am not. I'm not better than you on this subject. Matter of fact, I probably am you in so many ways. Practically. Because my actions have not caught up with my heart and my head. But I don't want it to stay that way. And I see hope. I see hope because Noah, is a little, believe it or not, he's a little shy. Especially when he doesn't know people. He came home one day. I said, tell me about your friends. Who are your friends at school? I don't have any friends. You don't have any friends at school? You're there three days a week. Half a day, three days a week. You don't have any friends. No, I just play by myself. What? Son, you got to make friends. You got to get out of your bubble, make friends. And I told him, you make friends with people not like you. That's an imperative my parents never would have given me. That's what I'm saying is the difference between enough saying it's wrong and being proactive and saying, break the barriers. 
So he goes to school. A month later, we're sitting around. I said, son, can you, you got I got friends, Dad. Awesome. What are your friends' names? Luke. Zeke. Sweat. I said, son, nobody is named Sweat. It's a nickname or something. No, no, Daddy, it's his name, Sweat. Okay. Tavarius. I said, just asking lots of questions. I said, do they act like you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, you know, we play these games, we do this, we... Do they look like you? No, not really. Really? What do they look like, son? Well, Tavarius, he's real, real brown. And Sweat, he's kind of red. I said, really? Sweat? Where's he, where does he, do you know, do you know where he lives? He lives in Jacksonville. Well, that's good. Yeah. Have you seen his parents? I mean, you can't go through this whole thing. Turns out Sweat's from India. His family is. And Zeke? No, he looks like me. And Luke? Yeah, he's white. My son's putting into practice what his daddy just talks about. And it's not enough to say, well, it'll just keep happening in his life. No, because by the time he's eight, if I'm not careful, he'll go into the same prison that I live most of my life in. Not because his parents aren't godly, but because they're not intentional. And because they're not willing to break down barriers proactively. And I don't want him in my prison. I don't want him where I've lived. I want him to live a life fuller and more joyful than I ever knew. And by God's grace, he will. By God's grace, he will. And by God's grace, we can. We can live that way. I don't care if you're 75 or 5. You can live this way. And the reason you can live this way is because of the passage we're going to talk about this morning. Because God is intentional. He isn't just flying by the seat of his pants, hoping it all works out one day. God's got a plan that he wrote down and sealed with his son's blood. And so we might turn our attention to the passage. Because now is where the media is. That's the story. That's the intro. That's to put me and you in the same boat. And I hope you've already admitted you're there. Most of you are. Some may not be. And I praise you for that. But most of us are. And you can answer, you can know if you're in my boat, if you're not an overt racist but a subverted racist, by answering this question. Outside of work, which is mandatory, who do I spend my time with? The church is the most segregated institution still in the South. You know why? Because it's totally voluntary. School's not segregated anymore, integrated. Why? Because it had to be. And I didn't live there. So some of you can make and dispute this, but from what I've studied and what I know and people I've talked with, 
it would still be segregated if the powers that be in that day had their way. So let's don't live on the pipe dream that our forefathers had some grand scheme of bringing everybody together because most of them did not. Atrophy happens naturally when you are not aggressive to overcome it. That's my point. The gospel pulls us, pushes us, prods us to not atrophy, not to allow for things just to be the way they are, to run down, but to go against the curve and against the barriers and tear down the strongholds by the gospel and live as God has intended us to live. And so let's look at the passage. Here's the first question we're faced with in this passage. Who is worthy to enact the will of God for the world? Who's worthy of this? Zechariah and Daniel are in the forefront of the book of Revelation. You cannot understand the book of Revelation. And I say that assuredly unless you've studied Zechariah and Daniel. You cannot. It's impossible. It's foreign to you. You've got to study those Old Testament prophets because their vision is the exact same vision as those given to John. It looks the same. It sounds the same. It is the same. And here we are. Who is worthy to enact the will of God for the world? And so we find in the first verse that there was one thing in the right hand of he who is seated on the throne, God the Father. It's a scroll. It's a scroll, and it's written within and without. And it's sealed with seven seals. That doesn't mean a lot to us. That's kind of mumbo-jumbo. And why go to such extreme to describe a scroll? Just tell us what the scroll says. What's the message of the scroll? But you've got to have those indicators and clues. You know why? Because in the ancient world, when they sealed a document, they sealed it with purpose. If they put five seals on it, Five seals. The messenger would take it. Anyone who saw the message with its five seals knew, without opening it, opening it, that it was a document dealing with finances. It was a financial document. It had five seals on it. So what do seven seals stand for? In the ancient world, a document sealed with seven seals was a will and testament. Everybody knew it. So when John writes that he saw this, his original readers, his original audience knew we're talking about the will and testament of he who seated on the throne, God. Right? And what is a will and a testament? We write wills and testaments, don't we? And it's the plan for the end, isn't it? The reason we write wills is we don't want to leave the end up to our children. They may not do what we want them to do. We write it down and stamp it and seal it and say, thus says the state of Alabama or thus says me about my state. But God has done it with His world. He has written a testament. He has written a will. And He has sealed it seven times. And it's in His right hand. And so, who is able to open this, to unveil this will of God for the world? Well, the question is asked for us. I got my first point from verse 2. It's the question 
asked by the strong one, the messenger. Though he is strong, he is not able to open the testament, the will. He can't do it. The strongest among the angels. And he cannot open this will, this testament. And then John looked around and all of the earth, there was no one. And under the earth, there was no one. And in heaven, there seemed to be no one. And he is broken. He is broken. Why is he broken about this? I mean, what's the point? Because he understands that by seeing this will and testament that is sealed seven times, written on the outside and the inside. I told you that to know the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. Ezekiel had a vision, and in the vision there was a scroll which was rolled out in front of him with writing on the inside and the outside. And it was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which God had made with the people, with His people. And they had betrayed God. They had broken the covenant. They had rebelled. They had went their own way. And God says, Ezekiel, eat the scroll. And from your belly will burn a message against these people for their rebellion. And you will preach and you will prophesy and you will proclaim that destruction is on its way because they have denied me. So when John writes that it's on the outside and the inside, the people in his original audience automatically know this is a testament and it's just like the Old Testament. That's what's in the right hand of the Father. It's seated on the throne and there's nobody who can make this thing happen. There's nobody that can unseal it, unleash it, bring it about. There isn't anyone. The strongest of angels can't do it. All of heaven can't do it. The earth can't do it. And those under the earth cannot open this testament. And he's brokenhearted. It seems in his mind as if God's will for his creation will remain sealed forever. He's on the brink of no hope. And so John's brokenness is because the glory of God seems to have been thwarted and it will not be realized. But then there's an answer. He, Jesus Christ, is worthy to enact the will of God for the world. Jesus Christ is worthy. We see him here in verse 5. An elder, we're going to talk about them in just a minute, an elder came to John in his weeping and said, Weep no more. Weep no more, for behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered past tense, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is worthy. And he is described here for us as the Lion of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, the prophecy about the fourth son of Jacob, Judah. From you will come a cub, a lion, who will rule and reign forever, for all of eternity. And now John the Revelator sees it. 
happening. He's the line of Judah. He is the root of David. Now, this, I have to admit, bothered me because it seems odd. The root of David? How can he be the root of David? A root comes before the tree. How can he be the root of David? We think linear in time, don't we? David preceded him. And so we don't have a problem with Isaiah 11.1 when it says he's a branch from the tree of Jesse. That makes sense in our human minds. That's how we attest to time. In Jeremiah 23.5 and Zechariah 3.8, we read that he's an offshoot of the stump of Jesse. No problems there. But root of David? Root of David. How in linear time is Jesus the root of David? He's not in linear time the root of David. In linear human time, David is the root. But that's not how God deals with time. God's not bound by our estimation of time. You see, because God, now you have to understand this, you have to look, this is, this will revolutionize your view of the whole Bible. God did not create, it fell, and then he was on this journey, and he's trying to get to the end he wants to get to. Okay? Bumping along, hitting a turn, hitting a barrier, having to figure out and plan contingencies to get around tough spots in the road. No, no, no. God, rather, planned the end. And then from that end came backwards along the trail of time to bring about his end. You say, what's so revolutionary? Because that means the end for which he created the world, which is that all peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every ethnos would be gathered around his throne, ascribing great glory unto his name. That end was foremost in his mind. When he created. And then from that end he planned the route to get there. From that direction. The line, the line and the lamb. Slain before the foundation of the world. Is the root. He is the cause. Why did Jesse? And why did David? And why did the people of Israel exist? Only that Christ might bring about the end. Of God's will and testament. Jesus doesn't exist because Israel existed. Israel exists because Christ must come. There is no Israel-centered ethic of the Bible. There is a Christ-centered ethic. And we see it in this passage. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. More than that, He is the root from which that tribe came. He is the reason it's here. We serve a great God who had a plan which he sealed before he created. It has no contingencies. There's no plan B. There's no doubt that it will be fulfilled. And there's one who will fulfill it. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He will bring an end, this glorious end, about. He will make it happen. That's the promise of the Scriptures. And that's the look at this passage Because Christ has defeated sin and Satan and death and the grave, He has reconciled the world to God through His blood. And so He is worthy to open the will and the testament. Or we might say covenant. 
What John sees here is the fading away of the old covenant into the new covenant of God. Not the blunt end of one, but the simply the fading into a new covenant. Not plan A failed, Israel has rebelled, so I've got to do something different, but rather Israel has fulfilled her purpose, my son is here. Therefore, we see this wide human race coming down to one man, Abraham, and from him expanding just a little into the tribes, the twelve tribes which bring us Christ, and at Christ the opening to all humanity, the threshold of grace, so they might be brought before the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. What we see is this widening to a narrow point and then opening to the whole world. That's the picture of the Bible. That's the picture, the glorious picture that's being painted for us in this passage. And so then we say, what is the plan? Oh, excuse me, let me go on through the description quickly. This lamb, this, lamb, this, this one standing, there's much debate about it, but I believe he's standing in the sense that it's completed. The work is done. He had been slain, you see in the passage. It's completed. It's done. He's not continually doing it. It's finished. The plan is in place. And so he does have the right. He's not going to conquer. He has conquered. You see, it's a past tense. The gospel is an, it's a fact. It's a historical, verified fact. It's not up for grabs. It's not hoping to come to an end. It will come to this glorious end. And so, he's there, and he is the conqueror, and he is the victor of our faith. And John has gone from weeping, as I would imagine, out of sorrow, to weeping with great joy as he sees this scene unfolding. And he's there with seven horns of power. Seven horns of power. The ram horn was respected among the Hebrews as a sign of power. And so he has perfect power, this one who's standing. Perfect power. It also beckons them back to the people of Israel around the walls of Jericho as they blasted the seven trumps and the walls all crumbled around them. He is perfect in his power. He cannot be stopped. And he has seven eyes, which are the Spirit. Of God. Very strange, isn't it? I I don't believe that he is a lamb. He's Jesus. Therefore, I don't have to buy into this theology that says he's got seven horns and seven literal eyes. What does he mean by this? Well, the horns are power and the eyes are the Spirit of God. Remember the creation account. God created, and then He saw with His eye, and it was good. The Spirit was there, hovering over the creation, examining it, judging it. These eyes are the eyes of judgment, which rove about the earth, and they're contained in Christ. He's the perfect judge. He has perfect power. He is the sacrifice The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The King of kings. The Lion of Judah. That's John's description of this one before the throne who takes the scroll out of the hand of God to open it, to bring it about. The four beasts, I believe, to be the Gospels. I believe that mainly because, and you have to accept this or reject it. It's up to you. But I believe it because the early church fathers believed it. The closest ones to the letter believed it. 
It's the four Gospels. The 24 elders represent the church universal as it stands completed. They are its leaders, old and new, covenant believers, worshiping around the throne. And so we have this scene set in heaven. And so what is this plan in regard to the ultimate end of all things? And it comes about in the new song. And that's where we're going to end today. And I'm going to tie the two, the intro and this together, just like that. A new song. Every time God moves to a new stage, a new revelation of His plan, there's a new song. There's a new song in Exodus. When they come out from the people of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, Miriam leads them in what's called a new song. Moses sings this new song. In the Psalms, bringing in the kingdom which had been promised. And the, 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 the bring about of that coronation of that king, David, there was, as the psalmist says, a new song sung. They were celebrating again anew the renewal of the promise which God had made to their forefathers. And then we come here. And John says, not mistakenly, but purposefully, I heard them sing a new song. The new covenant is what he's speaking of. It is enacted. It is in place. Oh, there was nobody anywhere that could open this scroll. And I was brokenhearted as I looked and saw that it seemed that God's will and testament would not be put into place But then there was this one, the line of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world with all power and all judgment, who took that scroll and opened it, and they sang unto Him a new song. Who sang it? The church sang it. The elders sang it. Not the angels. Not the four beasts. The church. God's people, old and new, singing together. In this glorious throne room. This ultimate end of all things. Here it is. And these are their words. God could have written the song however he chose. I say that from the beginning. He could, you, don't you believe that? He could have included or excluded anything he wanted. Okay? And this is their song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Jesus Christ is worthy. That's our first needs to be our first confession. Jesus Christ is worthy. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. Second second, uh, thing that we must affirm, Jesus is worthy, and the gospel is true. You see it? The gospel is true. The gospel makes Christ worthy. The truth. That he has died and ransomed with his own blood. That this will and testament might be enacted. Now he is worthy to open this scroll. Two truths. Next. He ransomed the people for God. Remember he could have left anything out. And he could have included anything right here. But look what he includes. From every, every tribe. And every language. And every people. And every, your Bible says, nation Ethnos, ethnic group. He has made them priests and kings, and they shall rule on the earth. Third thing that we at Grace Fellowship must, 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 if we hope and seek to be a biblical church, affirm. 
God's plan of redemption includes men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and ethnic group in all the world. The perfect racial harmony will exist around His throne. He is worthy. The gospel is true. And because it is true, He is saving some from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group. And they will be in racial harmony around His throne. And finally, it will happen on the earth. Follow me. Some of us live under the delusion that we can live white lives in white suburbia and never think a cross thought nor a positive thought about brothers and sisters from other races. We can give a little money to Haiti and appease our conscience while we refuse to go to West Aniston with the gospel. We can do that because we justify it. I have justified it because it's our culture and our culture is sinful and imperfect. God have mercy on us. When you come, we'll worship around your throne. But he doesn't say that. He says, and they shall reign on the earth. And I tie this directly to Jesus' prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? Say it. Say it. Thy will be done where? As it is in heaven. It's hard to get it out, isn't it, sometimes? Because it just, bang, hits us like a brick. I've read this passage, I've studied this passage, and this past month it just, like a stone wall. Son, you cannot live a segregated life Excuse it by your culture and believe you will be happy around my throne when your brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and people group come. You cannot live that way. It is not in keeping with the gospel and it does not bring glory to my great name. Do not mock me. My kingdom will come and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't need to be hoping for the racial harmony of the sweet by and by unless we're working for the racial harmony of all men in this day and age. God will not zap you and make you love black, red, yellow. His gospel will take root and it will change you. And I thank God. I thank God in heaven that His gospel has taken better root in my heart over these last weeks. Because He's helped me understand my ignorance. And He's taken away my defenses. And He has said it will be here. It will be here as it is in heaven. And so we move to a close. What is required? What must we do? God has paid a great price to reconcile, redeem men from every tribe and language and people and ethnic group. And yet we have been given... The ministry of reconciliation, according to Paul. And that reconciliation must include racial reconciliation. And you say, well, they're as much guilt as we are. Well, I'm not there preaching. I'm here preaching. Their leaders will have to preach in their churches the same message. And I'll tell you, it's happening. 
It's happening in our city. Some know it, some don't. Men like Orr Bailey, men like Anthony Cook are standing up and saying, I will not accept black racism against the white race any longer. It's over. It's done. It's seen its last breath in this county, in this city. And so I stand with them and say to my white congregation, we will not stand for racism any longer. Not overt, not subverted. It doesn't have a place in our world. It shouldn't have a place in our language. It should not have a place in our institution. We must stand with the gospel. If you confess Christ, if you confess His ransom, if you confess confess the end that will be, don't skip the third step out of convenience and culture. Don't do it. It's a grave mistake. So what will we do? This all sounds great, pie in the sky, but how will it get accomplished? It will get accomplished when we as a church repent. Repent. Some need to repent from sins 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Because as our black brothers and sisters struggled for freedom and full inclusion, you sat by not toting a post to lynch them, but you sat by and excused it as culture. And you need to repent. And I'm calling you to it. You cannot move forward with that still there. Some of us need to repent of sins from this week as we have joked and laughed and made fun of in our own little cultural ways people from other places and other nations and in other parts of our county. We cannot move forward until we're ready to admit and repent. And then we must bring about the actions that come with repentance. By the grace of God, we must pray. Pray that God would do the work. We can't do it. You say, well, it's social activism. No, it's only that if we turn it over to the social leaders. The church should be in the forefront, leading the charge to see God's kingdom fulfilled in this county. Not our mayor, not our city council, not our Calhoun County representatives and not our state representatives, our United States legislatures. It should be coming from the church. And it's not enough to say we're against it. We have to say what we are for in its place. And so let us pray and know what God would have us do. Instead of being ignorant and just running out ahead and doing it on our own strength, let us pray that He would show us His plan for reconciliation among His people in this place. And then let us preach. It may be offensive to some, but I do not apologize for preaching like this. I do not. In some ways, I'm freer today than I am other Sundays because I'm convinced it is the full character of our God. It's revealing what He believes and what He loves. I believe it with all my heart. So let us preach and let us propagate. Propagate. That's the active step. All the others, the, 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 the uh, repentance is necessary. The praying is absolute. The preaching is the forefront. But all of that is words without action. Propagation is what we're pushing for. What am I saying? I'm saying that we will continue to build relationships with 
predominantly African-American congregations. We'll be more aggressive in it here. We've already started, and what we've started, we will hopefully increase in the days to come. We will, here at Grace Fellowship, I'm challenging you, personally step outside of your comfort zone. You say, I don't make friends that way. That's not how it should just come natural. It will never come naturally. It will never come naturally. You will have to make it happen. You will have to intentionally say, I'm going to find men and women from other people, groups, that live in this county. I'm going to befriend them. That's what I'm challenging the people of Grace Fellowship to do. Not at work only, but at play, at church, around our tables as we eat. I said it was the great barrier for evangelism. I, I believe it's one of the greatest. I'm not alone in that belief. I'm not alone in that belief. Billy Graham believes it. He's traveled all over the world. He says it's absolutely the biggest problem worldwide. And he was guilty of it himself. Had to confess and repent. How does it change? It doesn't change just by a message. This can fire you up. It can make you mad. It can do a lot of things. But it can't make the necessary hard changes. You're going to have to go to your neighbor and you're going to have to invite them to eat with you and your children. You're going to have to choose to go to the ball game with somebody that doesn't look like you, doesn't act like you, doesn't think like you. You're going to have to do that. I'm going to have to do that as individuals or it won't happen. So we're going to continue to develop real relationships with people of other people groups here at the church, church level, leadership level. We're going to hopefully launch out as individuals into our society, making and bringing in those of other cultures and other people groups. We not only are going to say the door is not barred, but we will be intentional in seeking out people to lead and to follow who are from all cultures. We will continue to promote international adoption. Some people say, why international adoption? Because I believe it throws a stone at the hatred of racism, a stone that strikes the temple and crushes Satan's head. These are the things that are active that we must do. We must do. I was talking with Frank Barker several months ago. Many of you know Frank. Uh, He's one of the most respected church leaders of our time. He started his church fresh out of seminary in the 60s. I asked him, what's the toughest message that you can remember that you ever preached? He said, Without bad enough, 1969, I preached the Sermon of Inclusion from Briarwood's pulpit out of the book of James. He said, it was tough, but a lot of fruits come from it. And then he began to tell me the stories of men and women who have been reached with the gospel in inner city Birmingham because Briarwood broke the mold and hired black staff members. Because they broke the mold and they went after evangelizing the inner city instead of running from it. They broke the mold. They didn't just say, you can come. They went and got them and brought them as brothers and sisters around their tables in their homes. And they faced the ridicule of their friends and and so-called Christian neighbors. He says, the toughest message that led to the toughest work we've ever done. But it was worth it. It was worth it. Why? Why? Was it worth it? He didn't answer that. 
He didn't answer that, but I, I will venture an answer. It was worth it because when he kneels at his bed and says, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in Birmingham as it is done in heaven. He's on the front line. There is a joy and a happiness which we will never know in this church as long as we stand for the status quo and we do not attack the sin that is among us. So by God's grace, let us launch forward. Let us move while he is moving and let us see his kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, all that has been said.